Welcome to the Rockman Podcast, the podcast which aims to inspire action to test and further the limits of your resilience through physical challenges. We do this by talking to individuals with incredible stories of endurance and discussing the powerful benefits that pushing your limits has on your health, well-being and overall quality of life. If you'd like to be notified about new podcast releases, then be sure to hit the subscribe button below. And if you take any value from this podcast, be sure to give us the thumbs up or leave us a review. I'm Terry Rosman, Rockman founder, and today we are joined by exercise physiologist and nutritionist, Dr. Colin Robertson. I hope you enjoy. Colin, welcome. Welcome to the Rockman podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out. No problem at all. We'll be happy to have you on. As I explained earlier, like I saw your TED talk on, um, was it the suffering of endurance athletes? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it it was. Generally, that was the main theme. And I I was trying to be clever with the title and I called it the endless suffering of the endurance mind. That's right. Play off the film, the Jim Carrey film, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So, yeah. And I did that. I was invited to, which is always, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a real honor, isn't it? To get invited to do something of that profile. But, but when they ask you on to do it, you, you're pretty much given carte blanche. They say, we're approaching you because you've done this kind of work. What would you like to talk about? And I thought, well, if I'm only ever going to do one TEDx or TED talk, then what I'd love to talk about is not the obvious stuff, you know, nutrition and lifting weights and getting fit but actually the, the the mindset because that's what I've learned most over my entire career having supported some phenomenal people to do some crazy things what I've learned is is the mindset demands and you know we could probably make this the shortest podcast in the world which is the case you know embrace the suffering that's that's what you have to do you have to not prepare yourself to think how can I make this easy? And this is a cliche. It's been said plenty of times. You've got to prepare yourself to say, how can I cope with things that are tough? And it's a very different mindset. And it is about embracing the suffering. Yeah. Well, so that's, that, that, yeah, that's what well, it was all about. That's why I had to have you on, because it rings so true with what we're doing at Rockman. That's our whole ethos. It's welcome the pain, embrace the suffering. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it's because of the same benefits that we're going to talk about today. But it's it's because it builds resilience. It builds a strength within you to handle the worst situations, the stresses and pressures of that life's going to throw at you. Yeah. There's a saying, isn't it? I think it's a, is it Bruce Lee? It's like, don't wish for easy life, wish for the strength to endure a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. That, it's, it's, it's exactly that. But for people that don't know, so obviously you're, you've got a lot of hats. I was re, I was doing my research. You've got a lot of hats that you wear. So clinical exercise psychologist. No physiologist. Physiologist. Okay. Uh, yeah, exercise physiologist, strength and conditionist, or conditioner, conditioner. Yeah, yeah. Nutritionist, mm-hmm. but you're you're an academic. You you work at universities. You write research papers. Um, you do it all. I'm probably I've probably done it a disservice with mine. Could you explain to the listeners who you are and, and what you do? That's that. I think you've explained. It. I get asked that a lot. I think you've explained it better than I ever do. So yes. So my background. I'll try and do this really. I don't want to bore people. Yeah. So my background really goes all the way back to the early nineties and wanting to work in fitness at that time. And really that notion of wanting to work in fitness because I enjoyed fitness. And, you know, at the time I was doing quite a lot of martial arts actually. 
And for me, the, the endurance part of it was a love affair that I'd yet to have because I'd tried to do longer distance. I always loved cycling, always loved mountain biking. But, you know, I'm talking for an hour and a half, two hours, and that was me done. And so this, like, mystical land of real endurance was always out there. But I knew I wanted to work in that space. And so I took myself off, traveled over to the U.S., went down to Gold's Gym in Venice Beach, and thought this would be a great place to start. Um, and, you know, didn't get a really warm reception, got a bit of a, hmm, would you be prepared to open up at 5 o'clock in the morning? And... I kind of roughed it out there a little bit and, and kind of made a few friends and hung in there a while. And then a, really a guy who became quite instrumental was on vacation over there, but he worked at Florida state and he was working on the performance side of things. And he was on vacation and I did some one-to-one -one sessions with him and he invited me over to take a look. And I, sure enough, I just, cause it was a different world, certainly for me back then flew across and my mind just like, you know, it was one of those moments where you realize what you don't know. You know, mm -hmm. my ideas of fitness was you go to the gym, you go for a run, you do a bit of biking, you know. And then I went to Florida State and I saw the whole performance setup where they had such a vast, you know, um, facility and you've got strength and conditioning coaches, you've got nutritionists, you've got physios, you've got sports rehabilitators. Each area has got its own kind of high performance psychologist oh, it was just incredible and i went now that's what i want to be involved in mm. came home and that's when i started going down more the academic route but i was i was always kind of and the reason why i've got so many hats now i've always been like i've always wanted to do everything so when i was doing a degree i thought well this is great i'm learning loads of stuff but i want to be doing stuff so i got a job at the human performance institute which was down in south wales and that was joint funded and interacted by the Welsh Rugby Union and what was what was actually um, the Welsh Sports Institute. So it was brilliant. So I was learning sports science, but I was also working with elite athletes through academies, through Pathway. So, you know, the, the, all that was going on at the same time. And then so eventually I'd, I'd finished my degree and, and thought, you know, this is great. Sport's great and I'm loving it. But like what happens on the far side? when you get really badly injured or looking at this within the idea of disease. And that was what took me off clinically. So I had a big segue. I kind of went right and I applied for, and to this day, I still don't know how I got it. It tells you how long ago it was. And I got a job in a big district general hospital up in North Wales in Wrexham as a clinical exercise physiologist. And that was game changing because I was working with people who were dealing with cancer, palliative care, neurological disorders, musculoskeletal. I was looking at metabolic type two diabetes, cardiovascular pulmonary, you know, every kind of complex condition. And my job was to stress test them and rehabilitate them. And, you know, you could spend half an hour in the morning with someone who's had a total hip operation and then spend 40 minutes with someone who's just had a stroke and then an hour with 10 people who've all had you know, cancer. And so the rate of learning on the job was just incredible. And I was in that position for nearly six years, but about nine months into it, I still had that yearning for sport. So I started to work in football as well. So I was working strength and conditioning, nutrition, physiology with some premiership teams. And yeah, so I, I was always interested in diversifying. And so now 
because then I went back to the academic institute, went to Liverpool, John Moores, set up their performance arm, so, which I'm really proud of. And I've still got great links to John Moores University now. So we set up their performance arm, which had English Institute of Sport, Rugby Union, RFL. We, we got all kinds of, and then I was going far more than my master's degree was in nutrition. My PhD was looking at environmental physiology, chronobiology, nutrition. So I was always diversifying, got involved with big research teams. And so, yeah, so I've been really fortunate. I've worked with international teams, national teams, international athletes across four Olympic pathways, which were Beijing, London, Rio, Tokyo. But my specialist area, and I know and it's like my autobiography, this, but my specialist area or passion has always been like extreme sports. I always loved mountaineering, kayaking, climbing. Um, and so because of the environmental physio physiology angle and because we had this phenomenal environmental chamber, John Moores, started really there to get involved with people who wants to climb Everest, K2, you know, um, do Marathon de Saab, North Pole treks, um, Atlantic rows. So that was where I started to get involved in all those projects as well. And so, yeah, so right as of now, I guess, I'm, I still class myself as a strength and conditioning coach. I'm a registered nutritionist with the British Dietetics Association, exercise physiologist. I've got that clinical background and I still operate in that space. And thankfully, still producing research that relates to all those areas. So yeah. that's, that's, <laughs> kind of, that's kind of who and what I do. Yeah. Kind you're like of. a one-man band. You're like a, you're like your own sports center. <laughs> yeah. Like you could you could do it all. Like, so yeah. what what did it deepen your understanding of the human body and the physiology of the human body by working with when you when you worked in the hospital working with the injured people and the the ill people? Mm. Did that give you a better understanding to enable you to help the the fit people get the most out of themselves? Absolutely, it did. It really did, and and in ways that might not seem obvious so first of all was the the values the, phys, the physiological and physical values of play because sports science people might disagree with this but sports science has been one of the best things that's happened to elite and high performance sport but for me for one reason is because it's made them better care for the athletes who are involved there, there was certainly when i was a child growing up and watching sports on tv the win-at-all-cost mentality just broke people, broke people. And they they could even have good careers and they would be ruined afterwards. Um, and we could just have a whole chat about that and the evidence that supports that statement. And really what sports science has done through refinement, through a better understanding, has better care for the individual. So for me personally, when I was, you know, I spent six years and and that's a bit misleading because I've continued to work in, in medical and clinical spaces, but six years on the job, nine to five, every single day, it made me realize the frailty and, and really similarly when you're an undergrad and you're getting taught anatomy and physiology and you're looking at cadavers and you're looking at how systems work and structures are in place. But when you're working with living structures that have been hugely compromised, you really start to get a, an involved appreciation of the physical and physiological vulnerability. So that was that was a huge learning curve. But also, what you also learn is, is the refinement of rehabilitation 
And when you take it out of rehabilitation and you and you apply the same principles to performance, which is that, you know, small gains, continual improvement, not working towards perfection. And you realize just how successful it is in that area as well. You know, the, the avoidance of performance plateaus, continually working away, being more patient. And then the biggest learning for me, genuinely, and I, and I say this a lot often, and if you dig around and find talks with me on it, you know, I've said this everywhere, the strongest mindset I have ever supported, worked with, had the privilege to make contact with, have been people who've been given the toughest diagnosis and then said, no, I'm going to live differently to that. That's That might be where I'm at from a health point of view, but that's just going to be what means I'm going to kick on and do things differently. And that's everything from people in palliative care who've been given three months and go, no, I'm going to have six, to people who've been given three months and said, no, I'm going to defy the odds and kick on. And then people have been told, you'll never walk again. We've gone, let's, let's, let's debate that in six months' time. And how people cope mentally, psychologically, psychophysiologically, showed <clears throat> me how deep human reserves are. So they were, all of that then gets translated into what you do elsewhere. Yeah, I find it interesting actually that you're mentioning they're the biggest battles. Those, those people that you've seen given the terminal di- diagnosis, you know, paralysis or whatever, you know, these they're, that's real stress mm. pressure. That's real battles that they have to go through. The stuff that athletes do is sort of it's peripheral to that, really, isn't it? Like it's a, it's, it's an artificial stress, and it's it's funny because I always thought I always think this. The people that run, say, the London Marathon, the larger people that perhaps take it six, seven, eight hours to complete it, in my mind, they're stronger than the people who complete it in two, you know, the top end athletes. They've worked harder to yeah. do the same thing. It's, so in, in the same respect as that, it's like the people maybe in the worst conditions that have to really dig deep to get them, get through, they are, they, they are stronger in my eyes. There's a lot, there's a lot I agree with there, but there's also something I think that we could like debate a little bit. Yeah. Um, not necessarily that we disagree, but I've probably got a bit of a different take. First of all, on that notion, because I've done the odd marathon and bits and bobs, and it's and I've had tough ones, I've had ugly ones. And regularly when I've crossed the finish line of, of something like a marathon or an Ironman, the first, like one of the first thoughts that kicks in when you see people who are still out there putting the miles in is not, I don't think, wow, I'm faster than them. Cause it's meaningless. That doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. I actually think to myself, fair play. Cause I was ready to, in all honesty, you know, whenever you do these things, you're ready to quit a hundred times. And actually the, the success is asking yourself, do you want to quit and saying, no, that's the success of any event. Just go, no, I'm going to carry on. And when you cross the line and that's it, you're done. You know, you you can stop now. And I think I don't think about how much faster, better. Or I'm just thinking to myself, wow, you're you're still out there tolerating this and putting it in and staying focused and staying, you know, gritty and determined because you want it. And I'm in I'm in absolute awe. And I think that's because I've had purple events that have gone way longer than I wanted them to, where I've had to dig deep. And I know how tough it is. And so when you see people out there for longer, so I, I 100% agree on that. Mm. 
Well, I don't want to throw our athletes under the bus because having worked in that space for a long time, it's a different type of pressure. But there's also a relativity to it that's very similar. And the best way I can put it is, you know, your, your two-hour, let's say your two-hour five marathoner, their, their two-hour five is the same as your six-hour marathoner because it's all mm. relative. What happens is that, you know, there's a certain amount of genetics, ton of, of training, commitments, all that kind of stuff. So for them, the exact same emotions, experiences, demands, believe it or not, go through the system. It's just on relative terms. It's just a faster time on the clock. But they have all the same battles. I promise you, they have all the same battles. Marathon's a marathon. Ironman's an Ironman. Marathon de Saab is marathon de Saab. But I do, I do understand what you mean, though. And, I mean, we call them, in, in Ironman, which I love, they, you know, they call them like the heroes, the legends. And you have like legends and heroes hour. So you have 17 hours or 16 hours, 59 minutes, 59 seconds to finish an Ironman. And so for that last hour, heroes hour, legends hour, you get a huge amount of people who've completed that day, waiting at the finish line, cheering everybody over. And to genuinely, to some extent, the biggest cheers of the day are given out in that last hour as those people come through because they've fought all day for the same badge and the same T-shirt. And I love that. And I think when you've been through that, you you appreciate the value of it. And yeah. that's why they're all there cheering them on. Yeah, so, yeah, I like that. I like that. Heroes are. Because it, it's almost like a movie, isn't it? They're, they're taking it right down to the wire. Yeah. You know, so it's Absolutely. like, it, it's... It's, it's going to be like a movie for them. Like they've really got to push it. Um, those like that last hour. And I've seen just on, I've seen the heartbreak. So back in 2016, I was actually working on the Ironman UK, which is held in Bolton. And I was out on the course. So I was one of the um, support riders for the, the elite male. And I was support rider for number one, I think that year. So the, the person in first position, they finish up and then you're out on the course supporting everybody else. And that year, I was supporting the last runner in and he was going for it and he crossed the line at 17 hours and three seconds. No, everybody cheered and he went through and they went well done, but you can't have a medal and you don't get a finisher's t-shirt and technically you're not an Ironman because you didn't make it in the time. Ouch. Four seconds. And you know, at first he was distraught. He sat off on the side his wife went over to him and his child were there and they're hugging him and they're going, well done. And he's like, you know, I haven't really done it. And I just thought, I'm just going to go over and say, you know, because I'd kind of followed him for a bit. And I was like, listen, you know, fair play. You you fought that right to the end, you know, and it doesn't matter whether or not you got the medal or the T-shirt, you've, you've done an iron distance event. We're talking about four seconds. And I'll never forget this because he sat back and he went, all I need for a PB and the right to call myself an Ironman, it's five seconds. So I'll come back next year. And that was literally within less than 10 minutes of finishing, having that huge, massive disappointment. His mind had switched gear and went, all right, game on. I'll come back next year. I'll be five seconds faster and get me T-shirt. And I thought, I, just, I, I genuinely, I have goosebumps. I had tears in my eyes. I, thought, I love that. That, that Jeez, yeah. That's just amazing. And I hope, I hope that stayed with him. I hope he did do that. Yeah. What is that then? What, what do you think's going on in his head to make him think that way? I think a part of it. I mean, 
if we if we hover on Ironman for a while, Ironman isn't 2.4 miles, 112 miles on a bike and a marathon at the end. It's 12 months. It's thousands of miles, hundreds of miles on the road in your trainers, on your thousands of miles on the bike, you know, hundreds of miles, well, certainly over a couple of hundred miles in the pool, in the open water. And that journey, which I know is a bit cheesy, but that it's it's what you learn from that and it's what you become for having done that that really delves into, I guess, what you're fascinated with, which is the process of developing resilience. Because often people use the term mental strength and mental, mental resilience interchangeably, and they're not. Mental strength is how you cope with something really tough in the heat of the moment, there and then. And humans are great at that, by and large. But mental resilience is who and what you are and how you develop your reserves over time, how you condition yourself to cope. And often it's a lack of respite. It's a lack of reflection um, and a lack of investment in recovery that compromises resilience. So people, they're, they're undergoing the same kind of lessons and experience, but they're not, they're not really learning from it. But I think when an event like Ironman, it's so drawn out that you have to learn from it because you're learning every day and every week. You know, I've said this before and people will criticize me for saying it again, but you can, you can, you can bluff your way through a marathon. You can, I promise you. Um, it's not easy. It's not nice, but you can. And we all probably all know someone who's done it. And do you mean, do you mean that sort of like lack of training? Yeah. You know, yeah. you can, you can do a bit and you can have a horrible day. But, you know, you'll get there. You can run, walk, you can crawl. And, and it's horrible. Don't get me wrong. You've still earned it, believe me, because it's horrible. But you'll get there. And it's just not the same. Ironman's different because there's a time cut off and the scale of the event. And, and the key part about that is it's just the learning and the development of character and self that has to take place as you go through. And, and Ironman's a drop in the ocean, by the way. I've, I've trained people to do things way bigger than Ironman, but Ironman's a good example that people are familiar with. Um, it's such a process that you learn. You're learning every day. And it changes. There's an old... It's, I hate saying this because it was it was used in Dodgeball, which is a great film. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> film. It's fine. Yeah, it's a great film, but it made a mockery of this comment, but it's still true. And Ironman doesn't build character it reveals character and i think that that's true and i think that when you get to iron man and beyond you really start to engage in a world of events that reveal character and what i mean by that is that the building of character happens before you get to the start line and then what you show on the day or over the course of the next day week two weeks whatever it is is that that character that's been developed Mm. that process yeah i think that like uh, i think humans are very robust and i think that to really strip back and get to the essence of who we are and you, you talk about that character that that's why we have to go so long that's why we have to do 12 hours or 13 14 15 24 hours to really strip everything back get rid of all your so there's nothing left all it is is just the essence of your character and that is it is a journey of self-discovery and discovering your true strengths because you find out who you really are when you're up against it when you're in the deep waters 
And when you choose to keep going forward, you, you discover, you really work out who you are. We, I talk about it all the time because I feel like this, uh, one of the reasons again for Rockman existing is I think modern society, this civilized society has taken this away from people, this, this opportunity to, to know themselves, the, the challenge, the, the purpose, the meaning that it all gives you. And that's why I want, we want to encourage people to undertake these challenges. You really get to know uh, yourself. Mm. I want to talk about your TED talk again. Go back to that. So you opened with, you wanted to find, you wanted to discover the meaning of life. Yeah, which yeah. led you down the path of looking at humans under extreme stresses and pressures. Can, can mm -hmm. you explain that to me? What, why, why do you consider it the meaning of life? Wow. How long have we got again? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, all night, all night. It's, uh, it's true, actually. And it sounds like a really um, false, fake thing to say, doesn't it? But it's true. I, I, from a young, young age, I just really felt like this sense of, and I haven't lost it actually. Like, what's this all about? That you know, why why are we here? You know, it's this is an incredible ride of an experience, but what is it all about? And that's taken me to read some of the most far-reaching philosophical narrative text books, you know, that, that there are out there. And I understand where a lot of the debate and consensus is in that area. But for me, I I, and I believe this to this day is it's a huge part of what this life is about is about the experience of life about paying attention and about kind of being present and exploring the potential of everything you've got physically psychologically you know there's so much more to us and i think that the closest we ever come to really experiencing why why the why is when we take ourselves beyond ourselves and you know your comment then that life and around us now there's a lot of that i agree with but i also think there's something that people don't appreciate enough is that life is tough anyway and when and when you take a symptomatic approach so you think i'm not happy so you know you go online and buy something and you you buy a luxury couch you know because you want to be more comfortable and you take out a bigger pcp to have a more expensive car because it's going to be more impressive and more comfortable all of that it just it never gets to the cause you're never going upstream what you're doing is you're just suppressing symptom after symptom and it's no surprise to me that the highest correlation of mental health that we see are in people who are actually when you stand back and have a look at it, you go, if we look at the textbook, everything should be okay. You've got all these things that you want. But that to me is the evidence of the fact that that's not it. That's not it. You know, what we are and what our potential is and what it is that we're, the rate at which we can process information, the rate at which we can really take in what's around us is amplified when we engage. And when we push ourselves and when we push past ourselves and we really go into that realm of questioning ourselves, you know, really that voice inside the head that's going, you don't need to be here. You could be on the couch. You could be sat in your big expensive car, whatever it is. And you've still, you've got to handle 
on the reason why you need to be there. I think within that compressed moment, there is a sense of this is it. And unless you're there, you never experience it. And trying to explain what that is, I've tried a million times. It's nigh on impossible. You have to just be there. And then, no surprise, once you've been there once, you go, I'm going to go back again. And, yeah. and you find your feet. You're mad. Five seconds. Why is he able to recover within 10 minutes of a huge disappointment? Because he's been there. I'm going to go back again. I'm going to go back again. And I, I you know, look at our look at our human story. Six million years we came out the gloop. 350,000 years in the current form. We're a migratory species. We are designed to move. We are designed to be physically um, engaged with the world every single day. We, we like, if you look at our design, we were designed for so much more than sitting on a couch and consuming entertainment. And I think that the most human we become is when we push. So I've even lost sense of the question now, but that's kind of, you know, not just personally, by the way, I mean, I've trained people, I've supported people and trained people to just do some incredible things. And, and I see that in them. And there's a different look in a person's eye once they've been there. It, it changes them as a person. And there's a different sense of calmness about that individual. And one of the best parts of it is it strips away the vanity and the ego part because you go, you, you realize, you go, yeah, I know how tough I can be, but I'll tell you what, I've also learned how fragile I am. That's the huge part of it. And then you have a far greater value on life, certainly your own and, and those around you. So draw me back in because I, I, I can't have <laughs> forgotten how we got there then. <laughs> um, so what's your understanding then? We, we spoke about mental resilience and mental strength and you, you did a good um, explanation of how they are different. But what's the difference? How does it, how does it differ to physical resilience? Or is it one and the same? No, I don't think that, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, I don't think anyone's ever, I don't think I've ever had a chat about that with anyone in those terms before. That's fascinating. And I like your insight there because I do think they're different because, I mean, real strength, real physical strength takes time. It's an investment of time on a specific type of training, whether that's endurance strength, <clears throat> peak strength, explosive strength, you know, these kind of physical manifestations of strength. And they're really easy to measure because it's typically you overcoming some type of external load or distance or height, but you know, we can measure these things. Physical resilience probably is more aligned with the notion of, again, that endurance capacity. But for my interpretation of physical resilience is how soon can you go again? So you can be really strong, whether that's explosively, whether you're fast, whether you've gone long, can you do it tomorrow? Can you do it in two days time? You know, and that, that physical resilience and funny enough, a good friend of mine who's a professor down in Australia um, called Tim Gabbett. And you may have come across Tim's work. He does a lot about training loads and he talks about chronic and acute and his um, research, which I'm convinced by, by the way, is that you're, your general level of training and physical preparation should never 
be too far away from how hard you go in one session. So that's the acute. So you should only go as high, as hard, as you've got this really good base of training. So you should be building up your base so that you can do these little spikes. And I think that's also a good um, analogy, metaphor, or you know, representation of physical resilience and physical strength. That resilience needs to be that base layer. And that strength is what you can peak at at certain points when required to. And so that resilience, and resilience always matters more, whether it's physical or psychological, because it's who and what you are. So how well are you physically coping with the world today? And how well can you physically cope tomorrow? And if you put an effort in that's monumental, how soon are you going to recover and be able to go again? Because that's how migratory species survive, is by being able to move again and not staying still. Mm. And I think, again, that's a part of the problem that we have with our 21st century living is um, not enough movement, often enough stationary mindsets with kind of sedentary behaviors and then stationary sedentary outcomes. And I think it's tough personally. I think that's just toxic. Really yeah, do. no, totally. Well, I suppose we've got the age of Amazon prime next day delivery. Yeah. You've got delivery for takeaways at your, your door straight away at the touch of, but no one needs to move anymore. And it's a tough message to actually sell. Um, welcome the pain, embrace the suffering. <laughs> it's like yeah. the, in there is the answer, but who, who wants to do that? No one wants to do that. I felt, it was funny you were saying earlier, it's like that man who lost, lost out by four or five seconds on the Iron Man. He wants to go back in because you said he's been there. He understands the benefits. And it's, I, wonder if it's, I wonder if he fell in love with the process. It, yeah. It's that, those 12 months that he absolutely... Well, do you? I don't know. Do you do you love the twelve months of training? But but you do in a way. It's horrible. It's hard. My my experience of having done it, and I train people to do it before I ever did one, and it's it's a life. People fall in, and the same. I've seen the same thing happen to mountaineers. I've seen the same thing happen to ultrathon runners. Um, it's the life, mm. and it it really it's it's not the event. The event's almost just becomes a, a date in the diary to celebrate the lifestyle mm. it's the life and it's the digging in on a near daily basis and finding out again who you are that's what people love when does it end when's when, where's the finish line in this that's really interesting most people just change so most people find something else because also and there's some great work on this a, a commonality of the personality type who does these things is what we call arrival syndrome. So you've trained for 12 months, you take on the event, you cross the line, photographs, you have your moment, you get your medal, you get your t-shirt. And most people go, let's just stick with Ironman for a minute. They get the Ironman blues and they're really likely to book the next event the day after or within 48 hours because they go, that's it, it's done. I want to do it all again. And that's the first sign of arrival syndrome. It was never about the medal. It was never about the T-shirt. What you're mourning the day after is, well, I've got nothing to train for. Where, where, where's the purpose gone? So I'm going to book the next one. And so people will do, I, I think, I can't remember now. I remember a few years ago, I looked at the statistics of this. And it was something ridiculous, like the chances of you ever doing an Ironman 
were like no point no 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 one percent you know it's a tiny percentage of the pop of the world's population that do it but once you've done one the chances of you doing a second one was above 85 percent so <laughs> you, if you've done one you're infinitely more likely to do another one and it's because of that but what i've seen and this is really over the past 20 years is people will fall in love with obstacle race running they'll fall in love with ultrathon and they will do that for three, four, five, ten years. And then they don't, it's not that they're not in love anymore. They change focus. And then the Ironman becomes the ultrathon runner. The ultrathon runner becomes the marathon de Saab runner. The marathon de Saab runner wants to row the ocean. The ocean rower wants to go up Everest. So they just change focus. So they'll do these things until they've kind of filled the bucket a bit. And then it comes a bit, all right, I've done that. And like anything else, like how can I ramp it up? What's the what's what's bigger than this? What's going to take me there again? You know, so that 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 happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, do, do you know anything about? I don't know if this would be your expertise, but obviously that there's a dopamine hit to this stuff when yeah, you, when you cross that line and you know that twelve months of work is is over. It's a huge dump of dopamine. You love it. You know, you can break down, cry. You love it. And as you say, you get the blues. It's like a couple of weeks after you're missing that purpose you're missing that meaning i forgot my question what, what was the question <laughs> i like where you were going if i could jump yeah. in yeah go right. on go on i, well, did, I did have a point it might come back no but you're right the dopamine like you know that's right sorry to jump jump back in yeah, go on. is it like a drug is it yeah. like an addiction because you're saying you have to ramp it up you have to get like if you did another one you, will you get the same hit again do, do you need something bigger do you need you're dead right. I couldn't yeah. agree more because it loses its edge. So funny enough, you know, Facebook, of course you do. Um, you know, memories. Well, a friend of mine who's uh, into his Iron Man and stuff, he tagged me into a memory of his. I swear to you, this is today. He tagged me into a memory of his from about eight years ago. And he had a tough training session and didn't feel fit. And he put in it, it's like Dr. Cole says, if it doesn't scare you enough, you won't do it. I can't really remember saying that, but I understand the point because if it becomes mundane, then you don't get the stimulus. And if you don't get the stimulus, you don't get the dopamine response because dopamine is the reward hormone. And so if you don't really feel like it's that big a deal, then you don't get the same rush. And so what you do is you go, well, what's bigger than that? What's, you know, and this is why people do crazy things. They'll do, you know, double Ironman, trip, quadruple. You've got people who are doing, you know, 26 marathons back to back. You've got it, people who... The Decker. The Decker. Yeah. So, and and this is it, because it's a bit like, I'm going to just, this, I'm really going off down a rabbit hole now, but... Go for it. When I was working in hospitals, part of my job was to help people who were obese to lose weight so they could have life-saving operations. So you're working with the dietetics department, you're working with nutrition, you know, calorie control and physical activity exercise to get people to lose weight so they can have an operation. Now, those people I met, it was very, very rare that they, like, they hadn't, sorry, I'll, I'll explain that differently. They'd often done four or five or six diets. So they'll have dieted, lost a load of weight, then quit the diet, their behavior goes back to what it was and they put more weight on and then they'd lose a load of weight again 
and then need to quit and they put even more weight on. So no one becomes that kind of like scale of obesity overnight. And typically, and they knew the diets and you could have great conversations about nutrition, food, calorie count and all that because they've, they've been living this for years. But the reason why the diet failed is because of the similar thing. So they lose the weight they want, they get a rival syndrome, go, I thought having this weight off would be amazing. This isn't quite it. And their go-to point was to eat the way they do and gradually, little by little, overnight, they get it all back on and they reach a point and they go, this is wrong, I don't want to be like this, and they crash all the weight off again. So we see it at that end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, what you see is someone who says, what would be like really tough? And they go, right then, I'm going to swim the Gibraltar Straits. So they train for it and they train and, and, and there's the, all the unknown. Will I be able to do it? Will I fail? Failure is a great carrot to dangle. You know, all the all the what ifs, maybes, can I, the kind of backing yourself, the training, the commitment, the wanting to be able to overcome it. And then you do it and you achieve it and you get that rush and you go, brilliant, I'll do it again. The second time, not quite the same. You know, done this, know how to do it, might do it a bit better, might do it a bit faster for the vast majority of people. Okay, yeah but you didn't get that big whoomph. And so what they start to do then, they start to go, well, what's bigger than that? I'll, I'll swim the channel. I'll, you know. So they, they then go, well, what's bigger, better, tougher? And you're dead right. The chemical reaction, the, the hormonal engagement of the kind of the sense of, of achievement, um, of fulfillment, is that mm. huge chemical rush. And, and the reason why I brought up the, the food analogy is because we know bliss point technology, dopamine cycle, manufacturers of ultra-processed food, of confectionery, they know the recipe to trigger the dopamine response. You get the same hit every time. Ah, but you might have to start taking more of it. And that's how people get obese. And that's how people get addicted to massive big endurance events because you need to do a bit more to get the same response you got the first time. That's really interesting about you, you saying you get the same hit when you have the food, but you yeah. won't necessarily get the same hit from other stuff, you know, like for the endurance events and stuff, you just need something bigger. Talk to me about diet then, because that's another main area or perhaps the main area of your work right now. Is, is that right? And I do, yeah, I do a lot of work as a researcher. In, in, the, in the kind of food nutrition space. That, that's a huge part of what I do now. Mm. Um, and, you know, you are what you eat. It's a cliche. And as I, I like to add to that is that more importantly, you are what you absorb. And a big problem that we have in the world at the moment is that particularly if you look at just the UK, 60 to 65% of the average diet is made up of processed, ultra-processed foods, another 15%, which is lesser processed, but still processed. So on average, you're looking at typical person knocking about in the UK is anywhere up to 80% of their diet is very actually nutritionally poor, but energy high. And a lot of these foods, and this is not sinister or conspiracy, it's just fact, they, mm. they are engineered off what we call bliss point technology, particularly confectionery orientated foods. So they know they get the perfect blend of salt, sugar, fats, certain kind of excipients and binding agents. And they know we're going to go, woof, there you go. There's your dopamine. There you go. And then it's associated with, you know, comfort food, the reward mechanism. And the problem we have in Western industrialized nations is we have plenty of energy, 
but really poor nutritional provision because these foods, synthetics don't work the same way. And these foods are typically quite low in, in you know, providing sufficient amounts of vitamins and minerals. So we've got that as the canvas that we live on. And then people think, well, athletes must be great. And they're not, because athletes come from the same places we all come from. Um, they're just good at a certain type of sport training. And then so the, the, the process they go through to overhaul and change their diet is it's exactly the same. They just benefit from having more expertise on hand to help them make better decisions. But what I love about that kind of warrior mentality that people get through taking on tough tasks, through, through different types of physical challenges that they'll embrace, whether that's how they train or an event they want to do, is that before too long, they start to realize that how and what they eat plays such a big part in how they recover and how they perform and so it really switches people on to looking at their diets and and how they need to make better choices on it and so for a lot of times when it comes to the performance side i will meet someone because they're looking for a marginal gain they either want to get faster go longer cope better so they want to do resilience kind of sessions and then we get to the, right then, how can we bolster all this through diet and better choices? And it's tough because, you know, you have a relationship with food. And then when someone comes along and says, we need to have less of this and more of that, and people go, but I love that. And that makes me feel good. Food makes you feel good. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's really tough. What's your philosophy on food then? How, how should someone be structuring their diet? And, and say this is just the, the average human rather than an athlete. Flip those odds. Flip it. So 80% of what you do is working for you. Highly nutritious, whole foods, clever, intelligent supplementation when you need to. And then enjoy that 20%, you know, guilt-free and harm-free. That's the, I don't believe in guilt anyway. Guilt is just a fraud, but harm-free. You know, if you like having a Mars bar, brilliant. Just make sure you're not having them every day. If you like going for a takeout, superb. Turn it back into a treat. Have it once a month, not twice a week. Mm. It's just, just turn it back around. And remember as well, you know, when we look at epigenetics, which is one of the most exciting branches of research in the past 50 years, we know the foods have an epigenetic effect. So they change your gene expression. You can't change your genes but you can change the way your genes behave. And food is one of the epigenetic um, stimulus that you engage with on a daily basis. Exercise is another, but food, all of us are engaging with that relationship on a daily basis. And so simple things like adding a palm full of blueberries to your daily intake has a huge epigenetic effect. You know, watercress, you know, having complex carbs, less refined carbs, you know, putting really good fat in omega-3s, making sure you're getting good fatty fish, you know, mixed nuts, all these things, these start to change your gene expression, which means that you actually day by day start to become a kind of enhanced version of yourself. You start to reduce your risk of disease. You start to better care for yourself at a, at a gut 
microbiome, cellular level. All of this is the system working for you. And so when you get to the point that you've got a really good nutritious diet, plenty of vitamins, minerals, the macros, proteins, good fats, complex carbohydrates at the right amount, all this is working for you. Then when you want to have that treat and turn it back into a treat, it doesn't matter. You should do that guilt-free and enjoy every single mouthful. Mm. Problem we've got is the junk food is cheap, which makes good food look expensive. And people have got the, they've got the wrong balance. Too much mm. of the diet is working against them. I suppose a lot of people would say time is a big issue as well, right? Yeah. Um, I do you know what? I've, I've recently had two kids and believe I, I'm not, don't know if you have kids or, um, but you'll, you'll know that when you have kids, you have no time, but what it's done is it's made me so much more productive with my time. I think that if I didn't have kids, I'd be lazier. Does that make sense? Because yeah. the time is now precious. Do I believe that? No, I think everyone's got time. I think you've got to find it. And that's what I've had to do. I've had to find slivers of time to do the work around, you know, to do the Rockman work around my full-time job and do the kids and, and be a husband as well. Um, and have a somewhat of a social life. You, you use every, every minute that you're given, you use it. And I think when people say they don't have time it's because they're not, they're not using their time. They, you know, yeah. do, do, would you agree? I, I agree. I've just got a slight, I do, but I've got a slight tiny nuance of change. Yeah. I don't believe we ever find the time. I think we just make the time. And that's what it's down to. Um, I, I don't fall for that anymore at all. And I haven't really ever because you're dead right. We're all busy. I've got three children. I've got, I run, I've run two businesses. I run a gym. I've got my consultancy business. I work full time. You know, we've all got stuff that we're doing and what you've got to do is therefore better plan and you've got to latch on to the priorities. So I, I you know, the World Health Organization recommend 30 minutes of, you know, moderate intense activity exercise most days of the week. And, and people are struggling to achieve that. 30 minutes is 2% of your day. 98% of the time, you ain't that. And for that 2% investment, you're not going to get many things that will give you such a good return. Let's double it up. 4% a day, an hour. And I know people are busy. I know. And, and we've been told 5,000 adverts a day on average are telling you that you're dead busy and that you don't have time and that you need convenience food. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. I eat porridge every morning. And people go, I don't know where you get the time. Like, it takes three minutes for me to put it on the hob. <laughs> Yeah, that's all three, it is. Three minutes on the hob. I can find three. I can get up three minutes earlier. And I get up, you know, reasonably early, walk the dog. It's like people, whether you can or you can't, you're probably right. It's whatever you tell yourself, whatever you buy into. And I've worked with, you know, I've for sure I've worked with athletes. It's a bit easier there, to be honest with you. But I've done a lot of work with people who are working in the city, high demand, you know, big exec jobs, and they're proper, haven't got time. And over the process of it, we start to unlock and identify where the time opportunities are and where the prep comes into it. So setting yourself up for success. If you're going to tell me you don't have time to make porridge in the morning, no problem. Let's make some overnight oats. Get that little tub out, pour yeah. it up, in, shove it in the fridge. There you go. Just saved yourself three minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you can eat that in the morning with blueberries and some chia seeds and, and some like 
crushed walnuts and cashews. Brilliant. We're good to go. We're winning already. You know, it's like it's all of these things is, is if, if you can attach the value to it, you'll make the time. If you're not really buying into the value of it and you want to buy into the whole notion, I'm too busy. Probably right. Yeah. It's like I've had, I've had to do that myself um, with the food. And I've, what's the term? Sustainable consistency is the term, yeah. I think. You've got to find something that you can consistently sustain for long periods of time. So my lunches at the moment, I, I just, it's really boring, right? It's just, it's uh, flavoured chicken breasts with some sort of uh, fajita mix, some peppers, some peas, some onions, um, and a bit of couscous because it get the sachets of couscous, 50, 50p, really cheap. You just add hot water. But I can do that and it takes me no time at all. You know, I can knock that, I could, I wang it in the oven, leave it 40 minutes, take it out. And then I've got, you know, that's a, that's a healthy meal, right? That I can have yeah. every day for lunch. If I take away this, if, if I take away this planning and I don't have anything prepped, that's when I go and pick up the sausage roll from Tesco's or, you know, have you seen those processed chicken bites and stuff that you can yeah, get yeah. now? Refrigerators. Yeah. It's terrible. But like, that's when you break. And I think planning is a big part of it, but you don't, it's not like you're planning to feed the 5,000. You know, you're not doing a Sunday dinner every day. It's just that's simple right. planning and preparation. And, and that's, what's going to save you. I think. That's right. And, and just, you're dead right. And what you're doing, I think is, is bang on. And I think people sometimes think if they can't do it perfectly, then it's not worth doing it at all. And that's just not true because everything in between is improvement. And that's what matters most. And that's what builds your, your consistency. in. And this, no, I mean, the, the convenience angle came in in 1954 and it came in at the same time we started to teach people about calories as a way to understand food. And both of those came in because since 1948, we'd seen the advance and the onset of the fast food industry and the processed food industry. So we had this new food and we had to explain to people how to understand it. And if you look at the advertising through the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, and it's continued now, it's all about, you know, and it was really in your face back then. You're too busy and you're too important. You've got such an amazing life. If you want to give your family a meal, look at this. And it goes ping in 10 seconds and you've got a meal on the table and it tastes amazing. And they were investing loads of money and time in bliss point technology to figure out how to get you hooked and dopamine bought into foods. And that's the world we live in now. And, you know, it's hard because you've kind of got to shake it off and go, hold on, that's not normal. And, and actually the most normal thing in the world is to cook from ingredients, not products. Make things from food, not out of, always out of a packet, out of a tin. And I know it's tough. And I know for there are people with different kinds of budgets and for sure. But there is always a way to improve. So instead of saying, well, I can't have organic meal every single day, neither can I. Just go, what's, what's, what's the closest thing that's better than what you're doing now? And start to make that shift. And we need to. We need to from a health point of view, from a global health point of view. But also, and we probably haven't got time to go down this rabbit hole, but if you want to think differently, you've got to eat differently. So DHA, which is a part of the omega-3. So omega-3, marine-based omega-3, which is DHA and EPA. Well, DHA makes up 60% of the brain fat. And we know that most people are hugely deficient in omega-3, polyunsaturated fatty acids. 
And so when some of the vital substance upon which your brain functions is absent, guess what? That neurotransmitter activity is altered. And we know the food left, right and center changes how we think. It shapes our cravings. It shapes our mood state. If you want to start to think constructively, creatively, and independently, you've got to start to change how you eat. I promise you, you never look back. Well, they've been saying it for years. Fish, it's brain food, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's brain food. Yeah, it so, is. Did, did you watch that um, documentary, Netflix documentary? What was it called? Seaspiracy or something like that? Yeah. It, uh, did you watch? So, I mean, I, I know you probably got to take that documentary with a pinch of salt. But um, they were talking about sort of the the quality of fish, farmed fish going down and down and down. What, what's your opinion on that? Would True, yeah. would it still give you the same, was it D, DPH, were you saying? Or DHA. And DHA? No, it's true. It is true. Intensive aquaculture has compromised the nutritional value of the fish just the same way as intensive agriculture has compromised the, the nutritional value of some of the foods. Um, and also from an ecological sustainability point of view, we've got to start to look at different solutions, but bear this in mind. First of all, the, the omega-3 we want from the fish actually comes from the algae. So the fish eat the algae, we eat the fish. So the algae is the source of what we want really. So, the, the technology around that area of being able to, you know, take it direct from the algae is developing all the time. So that's encouraging to know. Secondly, there is more ethical fishing methods. So if you look at anyone who is friends of the sea certified, they're outside of that sea spiracy, which is really did put a spotlight on the worst of it. And so there is better quality particularly if we start to look at any type of supplementation around omega-3, there's better quality to be had. But for me, I think that what most people need to do, a bit like vitamin D supplementation, or sorry, vitamin D deficiency, you should look to supplementation. For omega-3, you should look to supplementation. But don't be, you know, it, the algae, I think the algae is a huge part of the future, sustainably, and that's where those omega-3s are. So, yeah. If you're going to buy fish, which I would encourage you to do, but go for the line caught, ethically sourced, Friends of the Sea certified. And that's difficult. And that means you're going to be having that once a week, maybe once, twice a month. The rest of the time, I would look to find a really effective supplement. And I would also look at those vegan options that are around the sea algae. Um, mm -hmm and look at how you can build a strategy around getting sufficient amounts in on a daily basis. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. The, um, as you're saying, like the, the amount, the amount of processed food that's out there now and how the world has changed. And it's, you're saying it's really hard to find something just sort of farmed yeah. normally and ethically. You, 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 it's a, it's a battle to find something not processed or affected by the intensive farming. And it should, it shouldn't be like that. Right. I mean, because yeah. you look at the modern world, it's that, that that's what you're looking at. The modern Western world, you look at how it's changed and how the health is changed. How, how much, how much has the health changed because of this processed food then? What, what is, what sort of the problems that we're looking at now? This is, we're going into dangerous territory for me <laughs> because this is where I often get my soapbox out. This is a okay. huge part of what I work on, though. 
and I'm passionate about it for a good reason. So, well, let's look at it. You know, in my on my watch, my God, have things got worse. So I remember back in 1978-79, I was in a school assembly. So little Col, he's around about seven, eight years old. Yeah, about seven. And the, the, we had this assembly about cancer. And I kid you not, it's, you know, it's just the way my brain's wired. I have an immense capacity to remember all kinds of stuff. And the teacher was saying to us, this is a really important session today because cancer affects one in five. And this means that someone you know as you grow up is going to be affected by cancer. And it could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be someone on your street, and it could be you because it's one in five. And they talked about different types of cancer and also the cancer kills you. You know, we had this really serious school assembly and it was really profound to me because it was out. I now look back on it as one of those moments of where you start to come to terms with your own mortality. I was like, wow, one in five. And I remember looking at my family thinking, well, who could it be? And you start doing that thing as kids do and go, well, one, two, three, four, five, which one of us is it? And then I started to work in health. And by the time I clocked in to start working in health and I'm on this big ward and there's people who are undergoing chemo and radiotherapy and surgery. And the consultant says, yeah, you know, because cancer affects and I'm expecting one in five. He says one in three. I was like, really? Wow, that's changed. Um, and he said, and, and obviously, you know, we know the statistics, anyone born after 1960, it's, it's one in two. So I, I had this moment of going, what? So I hit the research. I started to look at all the oncology papers, the epidemiology papers, all this kind of stuff. And you go, yeah. And there is a mistaken idea that the reason why more people have it is because we've got better detection methods. That's simply not true. We do have better detection methods. That actually plays a huge part on some of the positive outcomes we see where treatments have got better. But the fact is, more people are getting cancer. And in fact, now forget the 1960 bit, cancer affects one in two. So in terms of improved medical science, clinical spaces, clinical understanding, research, a, a disease, a non-communicable disease has more than doubled its reach and efficacy. Cardiovascular disease is still classed as a disease of old age. And yet I remember again, starting off in the district general and a whole hullabaloo people were talking because there was a person on the cardiac ward who'd had an MI and he was 36. Now that'd be average. That well, not average, but it would be common. It would, no one, no one would gossip about it. And then let's get to the real showstopper, which is an area I work on. You probably found this when you were digging around, which is the city's changing diabetes strategy. Diabetes is the pandemic before the pandemic. Numbers are increasing every single year for type 2 diabetes, which is a lifestyle disease. Up until 2002, there wasn't a single reported case of a child with type 2 diabetes in the UK. And now it makes upwards of towards 15% of all new diagnosis. So sorry, there was, there was no child diagnosed with diabetes 2? Type 2, type 2. How long ago was that? 2002, so 20 years ago now. And it, wasn't, and it wasn't because we couldn't diagnose, because it didn't happen. And so now what we've seen is we've seen the proliferation of cancer 
certain types, lifestyle cancers in particular, of cardiovascular disease, of metabolic syndrome, obesity is increasing by 10% every decade. Type 2 diabetes is increasing at an alarming rate. It's a pandemic, classified as a pandemic by the World Health Organization. When we look at the World Health Organization and risk stratification, sedentary behavior now is almost top of the list with your likelihood to develop a non-communicable disease. Our 21st century living is killing us. And our diet is a huge, huge, you, you are what you eat. Our diet is a huge, huge part of that because mm. the vast majority of what the vast majority of people eat is awful. And we've really got our work cut out in changing that. We really do. I mean, this sounds dead negative and dramatic. If I'm dead honest with you, I've never seen it so optimistic as, as I've seen it now. You know, because of COVID-19, there has been uptake, huge interest in health centricity. People are far more interested now in health food, healthy behaviors, healthy work-life balance. You know, people are far more motivated now and looking for better input and guidance. Medical, our medical colleagues are starting to insist that nutrition is taught for more than one module across medical degrees. You know, people are really getting a handle on this now. What we need is firmer legislation around what constitutes a food. You know, what can be actually classed as a food versus a food-like um, substance. And also stricter measures around what happens in schools, you know, what we cultivate as a food culture amongst our children. So there's work to be done, but I think we've got the, the knowledge expertise to do it, but we've got to really switch people's brains on. Sometimes your area of interest, which is mine too, that psychological strength, that psychological resilience, it's best applied when you're in the supermarket because the, the choices you make there are going to reflect the choices you make when you're at home. Well, my, my top tip is do online shopping because you, you're not tempted then. You're not walking well, well, um, walking down the aisles. My missus is constantly having a go at me because there's no snacks in the house, um, you know, when she wants a bag of crisps or chocolate. But I say to her, if I buy it, I will eat it. It, yeah. It's one of those commodities that you, the more you buy, the more you eat. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got some stats here as well, uh, which plays into the part of all this is so only 13% of the population regularly play sport or exercise. Yeah. 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 Over 50% do nothing at all. Yeah. And then now I, 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 you know, I don't know if these are correlated, but I truly believe they are that nearly half of adults believe that they've had, a diagnosable mental health condition at some point in their lives. So I, that marries almost perfectly that half of the population aren't moving enough, aren't moving at all, really. And, I and it's the same with the diet, I guess. That's going to play into this mental health uh, aspect as well. Hugely. People get addicted to the dopamine cycle and it's transient. And I, I, and I agree. Funnily enough, I've always, for, because those stats change a little bit. And for the last year, I've been saying 15% engage. And you've seen a more up-to-date one, which is 13. You get a little bit of movement around them. It's, it's disappointing to see that it's worse than just recently. It might not be. It, I, it might be a couple of years old, uh, old that stat. But, so, but, that, but those, thereabouts. those kind of figures, though, have been around for about, like, about the participation at least 25 years. Barely changed. 
the sedentary behavior one i mean honestly oh god humans are forgetting what it is to be human and it's no surprise to me that people are dealing with mental health crises when they're just trapped in this you know stationary place and they're not they're not experiencing themselves and they're not experiencing the world and they're not doing what the system is designed to do and you know, exercise is the most underutilized and underrated coping mechanism in the world. It literally is. I mean, it's it's if you want to develop um, a healthier outlook, if you want to have a more optimistic outlook, if you want to be able to develop your confidence in what it is to overcome, particularly overcoming yourself, if you want to switch the chemistry of your brain to release those endorphins and enkephalins so that you start to think more positively. Just go for a power walk, go for a jog, go for a ride, jump in the pool, you know, whatever you're, go dancing, wherever your thing is, you will start to tap into that resource of support on tap. You know, today's been a tough day for most people in the world. And I had a ton of stuff on at work because we've got some big projects on. And I was, de- I was determined to get my little run in before we jumped on this tonight no matter what happened. If I if I had to compromise it so that I only ran for 10 minutes, I was getting a run in. And fortunately, I was able to do a 5K, got out, and you just unpack it all. You know, you unpack it all and then get yourself set and go, right, I'm ready to go again. Yeah. You know I, mean? I say I say to the missus, you've got to treat me like a dog. Like, if I yeah. don't get my hour a day walk, I'll, I'll be a worse per- I'll be a worse father. I'll be worse husband. You, it, it's like a release, isn't it? it? It is those endorphins and everything. It, you are a better person because of it. Um, now, a lot of people say they that they lack energy to go out. That the, I did a survey with the Rockman members um, a couple of months ago, um, and one of the top reasons, one of the barriers to action, was lack of energy. Um, mm. It's like people don't understand if you exercise is an activator in energy. Right? Yeah. If you go out, if you just start walking and warm up, you get energy from that. Yeah, hundred percent. Crazy. Energy creates energy. You're dead right. Because energy can only ever be exchanged. So that that's all that happens. And the hardest part of keeping consistent is just putting your shoes on. Because if you go, no matter how tired I feel, I'll just put the shoes on and stand up. You've done it. You'll do that session. Mm-hmm. You you'll do it. I often, when I was working more one-to-one with people in the gym, I used to say, no matter how you feel, our terms are you show up. And if you show up and go, I can't train today, then okay. But you show up, you get here, and then we have that conversation and decision. No one ever didn't do a session because it's just the it's just the getting there. It's just putting the shoes on. And you're right, so when your energy is lowest, that's the time to go right. I'm just going to take the first 10 steps. And if you take the first 10 steps, you'll do the next 10,000 steps. That's it. It's just starting. That, talk to me a bit about motivation. Do, do, do you know much about it? You're going to know. I know you do. You know, you know all about motivation, I'm sure. But like, I know there's like extrinsic motivators and intrinsic motivators. Can you talk to me about that and what the difference is and why is one more important than the other? Yeah, I mean... I, I'm, I'm guilty of saying that motivation is a fraud, but it's not. It is, but it's not. And when it comes down to those intrinsic and extrinsic motivators, I think that what happens to motivation, particularly when it's intrinsic, is it becomes a far more valuable commodity 
Well, let's let's look at them both first. So extrinsic motivation is the recognition, the reward, the um, the sense of approval that we get for something that we've achieved. So we can be extrinsically motivated to do the London Marathon because we're going to get £20,000 for winning it. There's only a couple of people who are in that position. But a lot of people are extrinsically motivated because they're going to get a medal, they're going to get a T-shirt, they're going to get adulation, the people are going to respect them and go, wow, you did a marathon. They've got a story to tell. And that's a huge thing. Daniel Kahneman, American psychologist who I think is incredible, said that we don't choose the things that we do based on what they are, but we choose the things that, that, that we, we want to do based on the story they'll become, based on the memory they'll become. And I swear to you, in my experience, that's proven to be true. And so that can be those extrinsic motivators. You know, it's the, the whole kind of what comes with it, from the finances to the status to the identity can be that extrinsic motivation. Um, it can even be the weight loss. It can be that, you know, you're extrinsically motivated because you want to go from, a I don't know, a size 16 to a size 12. I don't know, whatever it is. The intrinsic motivation is, is the one that will, extrinsic will get you there once, maybe twice. Intrinsic will get you there for life because intrinsic motivation is where it's all about that sense of self and fulfillment and what it means to you mm. and how it adds value to your experience of life, of the world, and how it redefines and shapes who and what you are. And that's where I think it stops being motivation. It becomes a far more valuable aspect of self. And it actually starts to tap into that notion of, of becoming, of, of actually not only experiencing the world, but actually developing into who you're meant to be and how you experience the world. Because I was actually having this conversation with a colleague of mine a couple of days ago, and I summed it up. But I maybe I sum this up too briefly. You can tell me what you think of my theory. I said to my colleague, I said, as coaches, whether we're strength coaches, whether I'm coaching you to climb Everest, whether I'm coaching you through your nutrition choices, whether I'm coaching you towards better mental resilience, all I'm doing is helping you to get out of the way of yourself. I'm helping you to get past your fear, your vanity, your ego, your self-doubt, that's all I'm doing. I'm helping you get out your own way. And at its heart, intrinsic motivation is when we've learned how to do that for ourselves, how to get out of our own way and do the things that we know are, are going to give us a better experience, a better quality of life and more to life. Because it's bizarre this, and I, I appreciate that, and it's really hard if you've never been there, but I promise you, if you suffer a little, you will enjoy a lot. And for every ounce of suffering you put in, you get like a liter of enjoyment back. So it's kind of when you suffer more, you get even more back of satisfaction, fulfillment, achievement, accomplishment. You, you get it back in bucketfuls. So the magnitude of your positivity is directly, it's rooted in the depth of your suffering. And so suffer and embrace it, like embrace the suck, get in there and figure it out. And I promise you, 
when you think you're spent, when you think you're done and you want to quit, rarely you're about 50%. You've got loads left. You've got mm-hmm. loads left. So you've got to win that on little margins. So what I love about that is when you go, I'm not motivated, brilliant. That's a great place to start. Get your shoes on and get out. Yeah, totally. It's funny what you were saying about getting out the way of yourself. And I think you're completely right because I've been thinking about what is mental resilience a lot Well, since I've been doing Rockman. And because it's not, it's not like a strength. I don't see it as a, it's like, it's not like a strength that you can lift something. You know, it's, it's not something that you can flex necessarily. I truly believe that it's, it's, it's a shift in perspective. It's mm-hmm. a mechanism to reframe things, to, to put it. And so what you're saying is get, get out the way of yourself. It's, 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 you're changing the way of thinking. Nothing has physically has changed with you or anything around you. It's just your way of thinking has changed for you to be motivated to go after something as opposed to be demotivated. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's, it's, on the, it's on, the, on the head there, nail mm-hmm. on the head. And thanks, as I mean that, because you, sometimes you, you arrive at these thoughts and you go, will that resonate with anybody else? So the fact that it does is means like means everything. Yeah. Well, it's only your thoughts. It is only you. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 So I think, I think what would do people well as well, and I've experienced this and I've seen it, is remember why you started. You know, there was something that made you go, I want to try that or I want to do that. And then, you know, we kind of, we can, we can go offshore a bit and lose contact with that. So remind yourself, remind yourself why you started, you know, and, and really buy into that value and that purpose and make it matter. And if it matters to you, it'll start to matter pe- to people around you because they'll see the strength of the sense of value in it. And that's a great way to overcome motivation because it's never the big things that we do that make the difference it's the consistency and the little things that we do that make the difference over time yeah completely agree and i'm learning that to this day i'm 37 years old and it's taken me that long to realize it's not it's not the big things that you do it is these sustain it's the sustainable consistency it's it's the little things that add up over a period of time that deliver the results it's taking it's taken me years to find it i suppose some people never find it out you know so it's yeah. um yeah probably most people don't yeah. And I don't mean to be awful, but, you know, I'd say most people don't. Mm. Most people don't. And I, this, oh God, do I go there? Yeah, let's go there. <laughs> I've, uh, this is really dark now. And I obviously worked in palliative care and end of life. And funnily enough, I was down doing a resilience team thing in Goodwood in December last year. And we'd gone through this whole day with this amazing team of people. And it was like team resilience. And uh, at the end, they were doing a Q&A. And one of them said to me, through working in palliative care, end of life, what have you learned? And it really, it, it rooted me to the spot. And I thought, I want to give like an honest answer and not just like an obvious answer. And I thought, well, the first thing I've learned is that you can, you can never spend enough time with the people you love. But what I mean by that is, if you spend all day, every single day, when you get to the end, it still wouldn't be enough. You can never spend enough time with them. So that's, you know, never lose sight of that. Cherish it, but remember, you can never, ever do enough. And the second one I've learned, 
and I've literally in the hundreds, if not thousands of people I've worked with and supported at that stage in their life is take the risk, you know, do it. If it's there and you're thinking about it, do it. And, and that risk can be, you know, if you're really overweight and you're going to put your shoes on and your shorts on and you're going to go for that run, that risk can be, I'm going to do all the, you know, the three peaks in, in the UK. That risk can be, I want to get to Everest base camp. It can be swimming the channel that, you know, it can be a personal risk, a business, whatever, take it. Because when we get to the end, what I've seen consistently is that people very rarely regret the mistakes they've made, the, the kind of a piece where it done with it, I gave it a go, it didn't work out. But they go, I should have, I should have. That's what, that's what gnaws at people. That, that's that itch that they didn't scratch. That yeah. kind of. And so right now, if you're listening to this, because let's be honest, it's, it's likely, given your audience, yeah, that you know you're thinking of the next big thing, 100%. Nail it on, nail it to the mast and go after it. Do it, do it like your life depends on it because it does. The, the important part of your life, it does matter, it really does. Um, we weren't, I am in my pursuit, I guess we started from here in my pursuit of understanding the meaning of life. I know this for sure, none of this was ever about getting up, working for eight hours, having your tea, watching television, going to bed, times five or six, then having a day off so you can do it again until you get to the age where there's not much left to give and then you can ride it out with ice creams and looking at the view. I know for a fact that that's not what life's about. You know, do it now. And if you're 37, if you're nearly 50, if you're 27, 17, think big and go and have a look. The world's amazing. Yeah, I think I think that's a beautiful point to end it on. To be honest, and what is it? It's um, the ship is safest when it's in the marina, was it? But it's uh, that's not what it was built for. That's right. Yeah, I butchered it. I butchered that. <laughs> Same. You're right, but right. it's something like that, right? You're dead right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what's the other one that's like that? My dad was in the navy. Um, what's the other one? Was it a fair sea never made a good sailor? And it's true. You know, yeah. ride the waves. And it, like, maybe you might cut at this point because this might not be as good an ending. <laughs> like, you know, I, I regularly, one of the things I'm really grateful for is that I regularly will, like I live just opposite a farm, I'm really lucky, and I'll go out and there's not a lot of light pollution and I'll see the moon or the stars and I look up and I go, what? Are we allowed to swear on this? Yeah, go on. <laughs> I go, what the fuck is all this about? Like, look at that. And that's endless. That's infinite. Like, if you stop and think about that for a minute, you go, hold on. This is all just weight. That's infinite and expanding. There's this big chunk of rock where if not for that, the tides of the earth wouldn't work. There would be no life here. We're 66% water and we're tied into the movement of that. This is also orchestrated, you know, it's orchestrated to perfection. It's above us and around us each and every single day. It is incredible. Right then, what do I want to do next? Like, what's the next thing to experience? What's the next hill to run up? What's the next lake to jump in? And I think if we can all keep hold of that, 
and keep doing it right up until you're sharing your end of life stories and passing it on to the next person. Honestly, like in these cities and even villages to a certain towns to a certain extent, you don't see those stars. You see the moon, but you don't see the stars. You don't see the expanse of the universe. And I, I've thought about this before as well, that I think if people saw those stars that you see more often, they would be more humbled, enlightened every well, day. But they don't see it because of the light pollution. It's a shame. Too. Just before the world went crazy, so it was October 2019, I took a team who were fundraising for a charity on a trek through the Grand Canyon. And we, we, we were out there for 14 days, trekking, camping in the wild. We kayaked up Lake Powell, <clears throat> did the full canyon trek down in it. It was amazing. And every single night, you had the Milky Way, like, like someone had just turned the projector on. It, it, it was so hyper real, it looks fake. And I've experienced that in a few parts of the world. I've experienced it when we were at base camp and I've experienced it in a few places. But every night for two weeks, and the people on that who are all from mixed backgrounds, some from London, Manchester, Liverpool, you know, places. And I remember the first night and there was a genuine, and these were adults, there was a genuine like, like that. that's not above us at home, is it? I was like, we're on a planet. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not like an American thing. That's what we should see. Whenever it's clear, we should see that. It's the light pollution time of year for sure. And there was a real, you know, for one person, they found it the first couple of nights, they found it quite like kind of um, upsetting and, you know, disorientating. And then, and then as you're saying, then it settled in. And, and you, you never... Like I've not, I never get to the point where I go, oh, yeah, I've seen it. You still, every night, you know, you don't want to go to sleep. It's more fascinating than daytime sky. And you go, this is where this is what is around us. This is the reality. This is the magic of our reality. And if we if we just looked at it and recognized it more often, we go, yeah, I don't need a luxury couch. I need a good pair of trainer shoes and a waterproof coat because I want to be out in it and I want to explore it. And for instance, when you like when someone buys a Lamborghini, they're not buying a Lamborghini so they can drive 30 miles an hour. They're buying a Lamborghini so they can clock it and find out what it's about. <laughs> That's you. Get out there and find out what your performance is capable of and live it and love it and enjoy it and then do it again tomorrow. And then do it again tomorrow. Maybe I'll finish with this. Nietzsche, philosopher who I read a lot of the work of, he said, you should live your life as though every single day will be the same and you would be satisfied with that. So you've got to structure your life so that every day would be a retelling of the exact same thing, but you'd be happy with it. Because if you don't plan it that way, it happens that way. And when it happens that way without you planning it, you typically don't get very much. I like it. I love it. Colin, thank you very much. Thank you. If people want to follow you, how can they find you? As I always say this, don't give your, your home address. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pro I mean, for the, for, I mean professionally, um, Twitter is probably at, at Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R underscore call is probably the best place. Um, there's a few bits. Uh, I'm, I'm really lucky because I work with Cause, who are an education company in, in the kind of nutrition and personal training space. 
I consult with some big nutrition companies. I'm academic. So I'm really lucky that lots of other people put stuff out and I don't even know it's there. But for the odd bits that I do, the odd tweet and comment, then that's probably the best place. And LinkedIn. Everyone's on LinkedIn. Everyone's on LinkedIn. I'm the least active person on there, but I am on there. Well, what I'll do is I'll I'll put a link to your um, your LinkedIn and to your Twitter. And I'll put a link to your TED Talk as well so people can check that out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? We started with the TED Talk, didn't we? Mm. I, um, I never watch or listen to anything I've ever done. And um, one of my children, my daughter, my oldest daughter, came home and she said, oh, it was so embarrassing. She said, we watched your TED Talk in class, but no, <laughs> one, knew, no one knew you were my dad. It was just the teacher had put it on and said, we've got these talks and played it to the class. And it was all about trying to motivate people and all the rest of it. And uh her friend, like towards the end of it, went, Isn't that your dad? And the whole class turned around and the teacher was like, What? Is is that your dad? And she was like, Yeah, yeah, it's me dad. <laughs> um, and she came home and she's like, the teachers asked if you can go in and talk to the class. And that for me, I thought, if it if it's just for the purpose of embarrassing my daughter to that extent, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to do it. <laughs> That's the take home, and, like, and, you, and you do it again in a heartbeat if it, if it yeah. embarrasses her again. We've well, got two more kids who need embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, two more to go, two more to go. But thank you, honestly, Con. I really enjoyed that. I think it was really valuable uh, conversation, and I, I think the listeners are going to take a lot of value from it as well. Um, yeah, no thanks, and you know, hopefully we'll have you on again. I think it was uh, a really great chat. So I'd love to, and you know what I have to say, and you can cut this out or you can keep it in. But I think you brought as much to this as I have. And so it's great to have a chat and not me just gobbing up. But I think your brand is outstanding. I really do. Thank you very do. much. And I think that people, genuinely, people need it. Because these things and what you've done, and maybe you've done this knowingly or maybe not, these things echo back. And, you know, you talked about, you asked me about motivation. I love these things. And when it's writ large and you, you're then able to buy into a tangible concept and it represents who you are and you put that out there, people's chests get bigger, they stand prouder, better posture, and they live it more. So for every one of these big, uber, faceless global brands that are, they, they need a brand like yours. So best of luck with it all, mate. Best yeah, of luck. thank you very much. And that's why I did it, because I, it's something I needed. I needed this brand, and because it didn't exist, I didn't see it anywhere. I decided to create it. So, um, yeah, thanks very much. Always the best reason ever, that. Brilliant. It means a lot. But thanks very much for your time, Colin. And we'll catch up very soon. Yeah, look forward. Thanks again. Right.